Welcome to Professors Talk Pedagogy, a podcast from the Academy for Teaching and Learning at Baylor University. I'm your host, Christopher Richman. Professors Talk Pedagogy presents discussions with great professors about pedagogy, curriculum, and learning in order to propel the virtuous cycle of teaching. As we frankly and critically investigate our teaching, we open new lines of inquiry, we engage in conversation with colleagues, and we attune to students' experiences, all of which not only improves our teaching but enriches and motivates ongoing investigation. And so the cycle continues. Today our guest is Dr. Trey Cade, Director of the Institute for Air Science at Baylor University. Dr. Cade came to academia after serving in the U.S. Air Force, specializing in weather and space. In 2015, Dr. Cade was selected as a Baylor Fellow, a program recognizing gifted teachers and devoted to pedagogical experimentation. We are delighted to have Dr. Cade on the show to discuss teaching complex science to non-science majors, using history to teach science concepts, and more. Trey Cade, welcome to the show. Thank you. We are so glad to have you here to talk to us primarily about a particular course that you have taught here at Baylor, a space weather course for non-majors. And you've presented about your pedagogical approach to this course, and you've also written about it in our collection called to Teach. But first of all, I just wondered if you could kind of give us some perspective on what this course is and what it tries to accomplish sort of within the curriculum that you're teaching. Sure. Uh, so the, the course, um, it's, it's Introduction to Space Weather, uh, and, and the idea is to, to teach space weather to students, but uh, with, with a different focus than you would normally see from a course of this type. You certainly see space weather, space physics type courses taught um, at other places, but they tend to be more for you know, the physics students, the engineering students. That's, that's the audience. Um, I've always been very interested in kind of community outreach, public education, uh, and so kind of bringing that element into my, my focus and my goal for teaching this class, the idea was to, to open up this class to anybody uh, at Baylor, to, to any student of any major, uh, regardless of background. So assuming no special background knowledge uh, any prerequisites uh, coming into this class and teach it very much more from a, um, a qualitative perspective rather than kind of the typical quantitative perspective that you'd see in a lot of science classes where you know, you're know you sitting there and it's formulas and doing calculations and, and that kind of thing. I wanted to take a very different approach for more of a, uh, a general audience. And a part of the reason for that is because um, I think there's a general lack of uh, knowledge and understanding about what space weather even is among just the general population beyond scientists who are involved in it. Because I get that question all the time when, uh, when I, you know, just talking to people, when I tell them that, you know, my background and, and a lot of what I have done as a scientist is in the area of space weather, you know, the first question I get is, uh, you know, oh, there's weather in space. That's you know, exactly have, what I was going to say. People <laughs> have no idea, you know, what that even means mm-hmm. and what that's referring to. Uh, and so uh, part of the goal of this class is to broaden the exposure of, uh, of space weather knowledge to, uh, to a greater population. Have you 
had experience teaching non-majors this this specific of material in the past? Um, so my background has prepared me for this, not exactly in that way, but um, I, before coming to Baylor, I, I was in the Air Force for 22 years uh, as a space weather scientist. That's mostly what I did. So, um, but, but throughout my entire career, from very early on, I was in positions where I would have to um, present information, give presentations to an audience that uh, was not, you know, didn't have the scientific background to, you know, say general officers, you know, generals who, um, you know, wouldn't necessarily have the, the scientific expertise to understand things at a scientific level. Mm-hmm. So I had to present to that audience, I would have to present in more of a, a general big picture qualitative manner. And so those experiences that I had throughout my Air Force career and the fact that I already had an interest in kind of public education, public outreach on, on the topic of space weather, I would go to schools and present to, to schools and scouting groups and, um, and various, you know, kind of public type uh, layman audiences. Uh, and so all those experiences prepared me coming into this class for how I wanted to, to approach it. So let's talk a little bit more about this particular approach that you took for this class. You write that you teach the first third of the class as a mystery novel. Can you yes. explain what that means and how you decided to use that approach? Yes. So the influences for that approach started when, when I came to Baylor and my, during my faculty orientation when I first got here. Um, a couple of people that talked to my faculty orientation group, one of them was Chuck Weaver. And one of the things that stuck out when he was talking to us about the science of learning, um, he, one of the things that he said that stuck with me, he said, people remember best what they create. And so the, 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 the idea that, you know, you don't, you don't want people to study answers, you want them to create their own answers. So that was kind of one influence that, I, that, that, that stuck with me from, from that orientation. The other one was listening to um, Ed Berger, one of the prior Cherry Award uh, winners that was, that was here when I, uh, when I first started working at Baylor. And he talked a lot about um, education as being inspirational and sparking interest and changing lives. And, you know, he asked the question, um, you know, in 10 years, what are, you student, what are your students going to remember? And I took that and I thought back to the classes that I had as an undergrad, and I really don't remember a lot of the things mm-hmm. from my classes when I was an undergrad student. So that led me kind of along a path of thinking about doing things differently, sparking that interest, sparking their imagination in a way that maybe can connect to them more and maybe be um, a, a little bit more remember, uh, memorable. And uh, Ed Berger also talked about learning should be joyful. And so I wanted to have more of a, more of a, a community type environment um, in the class as, as opposed to, you know, the, the traditional, you know, lecture approach where I stand up there and I talk for an hour mm-hmm. and they listen. Um, I wanted... Or not listen. Or, or not listen. <laughs> as, yeah, which, which is usually what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to try to make the class more interactive and get more hands-on with some of the material. And so those were the, the influences kind of led me into this line of thinking of um, 
okay, I'm going to be teaching students. You know, I'm opening it up to all majors, so I'm, I'm going to be bringing in students with very little math and science background. Um, so I'm going to have to teach this in a different way mm-hmm. uh, than, than would normally be done. And so that led me to the, the thought of, well, okay, here's an interesting approach I could take. I could basically, my students could learn space weather the way humanity learns space weather. And there's some advantages. And as I thought about that more and kind of fleshed out that idea a little bit more, and I actually sat down with Ed Berger and, and kind of talked about my ideas and the approach I wanted to take. And he gave me some, some good insights and some good things to think about. Um, but the advantages of that approach, you know, it, there's a fascinating story to tell that covers hundreds of years, brings in all kinds of uh, very interesting characters with interesting stories there's a lot of intrigue. Um, there's there, there's potential there to spark their interest and to get them thinking about the material in a different way and in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a unique way that may be a little more engaging for them. It also allows for kind of a scaffolding approach to teaching, taking students that don't have any background in the subject area, um, teaching it kind of from a historical perspective and kind of, you know, them learning the way humanity learned it, you know, our early understanding of things like, you know, the aurora, um, geomagnetic storms, the sun, were all very simplistic. And so we start from a very simple basis of understanding. Um, you gain, you know, and as the story progresses, you know, we make some discoveries, you gain some new insights, but then that brings up, you know, more questions mm-hmm. that, that you've got to try to answer with more investigations, and you grad, and, and and so the sophistication of your understanding gradually grows over time as the story progresses, until eventually we get to you know modern times, and so at that point they're ready to, again at a very qualitative big picture level, but be able to understand some basic um, concepts that can be somewhat complex, like plasma physics. Um, for example, but they, they're able to understand it at a very basic level um, because we kind of follow this scaffolding and storytelling approach where the learning kind of grows naturally as humanity learned it, the sophistication of our understanding um, grew. So that, that's an advantage. Um, and, I, and I think the other one is, and this wasn't, this wasn't a goal that I had in mind when I decided to take this approach, but it was a benefit that came about as I started actually teaching it. And over the first few years of actually teaching this class, that the storytelling approach, the historical storytelling approach, it kind of starts to unfold, as I said, like a mystery novel, or as some students have described it, maybe even better as kind of a series of TV TV episodes. Mm where and each episode and and it's it's kind of developed to where now each episode and i call them episodes instead of lessons now so that's, that's something that, I, that i've changed recently and so episodes with episode titles um so each episode now ends on a cliffhanger so you know we're making discoveries learning some things but then that brings up new questions that need to be answered and so that's kind of the the, the cliffhanger that each class 
um, ends on. So that kind of that leaves them, you know, wanting more and coming back to find out, okay, what's going to happen next? Because mm-hmm. with this kind of cliffhanger approach, so all those um, I think are, are, are advantages of using this uh, this approach. Seems to me that what you're getting at is really like a picture of the scientific process as it actually is. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm not a science person by any stretch of the imagination, but I remember being taught at, at various stages in middle school, high school, college, the quote unquote scientific method. Yes. And it seems like such a, such a like simple static checklist kind of thing. But what you're talking about is the pro- the actual process, which is a lot messier than the checklist of hypothesis and <laughs> test and recheck hypothesis and all of that kind of thing. So how do students react to kind of like the, the messiness, the uncertainty that, that you're putting before them? Uh, th- that is absolutely true. One of the things that, that they learn and one of the things I tell them at the beginning is they're going to see how science actually works. They're not going to get this, you know, this, this pristine view of science, um, where we always have all the right answers. The, 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 as you said, the scientific method that is presented in school as this, you know, this rigorous step-by-step process. And I'm sorry, most of the time, science does not follow that scientific method that mm-hmm. we present in schools. At least in my discipline, it it doesn't. It's, you know, it's trial and error, and and people just trying to figure things out and trying things and see if seeing if they work. Um, making measurements, collecting data, and then trying to figure out what it means without any preconceived idea of, you know, here's the hypothesis I'm going for. It's just, these are measurements I made, and now I've got to, I'm trying to figure out what they mean. Um, It's people getting it wrong. And when they see, you know, people that we, that that esteemed scientists like um, Edmund Haley, um, Galileo, um, even even Einstein, who features a little bit in in our, in our our story, but I mean, big name scientists getting things wrong. I think that brings the science down to a more human level and a more relatable level because I think it's very easy for students to get in their mind that these science, you know, the the the, the great man thing, right? Where yeah. this, these scientists were great people and beyond our ability to, you know, they're on another level beyond what, what we could possibly do and brilliant people and figure things out. Well, well, yes, they were smart and some of them were, were brilliant, but they also got things terribly, terribly wrong. Um, and they see that. Um, so, you know, everybody makes mistakes. There are failures everywhere. And that was another thing that, that uh, I remember Ed Berger talking about is, is failure and how mm-hmm. failure should be, um, should be celebrated. Because failure, failure means that you're trying. It means that you're learning. And sometimes that failure is necessary, especially when we look at the history of science. Some of those failures are necessary to enable the next step in, in learning to where you get the answer right. Um, and I don't think that message is presented very often in, in the sciences. Yeah, it seems to me like there was there was a there was and is a perfect opportunity in the midst of the pandemic to think about the scientific method and the the typical way i think that in popular culture science is presented as having answers like its job is to have the answers right. 
really has done a disservice in a lot of ways to how people are interpreting the messages that they get from CDC and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. where we have in real time, like, no, this is a messy process. Yeah, and right. that's, that's a good and example. The, the best scientists are yeah. always just making the best recommendations with the little information that they have at any given time. And it's always open-ended. It's always open to change, <laughs> right, right? Right. I mean, the basics of science is you're trying to figure out how nature works. Mm -hmm. um, and that process never stops. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a continual process. Uh, yes. And it evolves and, and changes um, over time. Absolutely. It's, it's never static. So you write also about how... Uh, much of the course is also problem-based pedagogy. So once you've kind of set the scene of the episodes and the cliffhangers <laughs> and the historical narrative of it, you get into you know hands-on activities. Right. So how do you how do you find or create problems that are really aimed at driving the your particular learning objectives forward? Um. So as I was kind of first putting this course together, um, NASA was actually a great resource for me. They have um, kind of a, a set of websites devoted to space science education. They had uh, tons of um, exercises basically mm. designed for schools to use in kind of illustrating, you know, space science related um, concepts. And so I was able to take um, many of those and adapt them to my class. So NASA was a great, great resource um, for that. One of the things that I wanted to do with the historical approach was, as we're telling the story, actually I give my students the actual data that some of these scientists were working with to try to figure things out. And so, um, you know, I could get my hands on the actual data you know, give those out to the students and say, okay, here's, you know, here, here's some measurements or some data that the scientists collected. What can you glean from this information? So try to make them come to conclusions on their own from the data, uh, as opposed to me just, you know, telling them what the answers are. Again, this idea of creating your own answers, right? goes back to what, yep. uh, to what, what Chuck Weaver said. So some of that, you know, using using historical data, and I was able to to, to find and, and use some of that pretty easily. Uh, re uh, uh, reconstructing uh, experiments that were done in the past, some very simple experiments that that can be done in class. Um, Orsted's experiment, where he shows that electricity running through uh, a wire. Uh, deflects a compass needle. It makes a compass needle move when you hold that wire next to a compass. And so we do that experiment in class and I make them figure out, okay, what does this mean? What's going on here? And, you know, it leads them to the realization that a, an electric current creates a magnetic field that deflects the compass. And so, you know, getting some hands-on with experiments, some simple experiments like that is, is really useful and very memorable um, for the students. And then there have been cases where I've had to create my own mm -hmm. <laughs> problems and and, uh, and and scenarios based on uh, the needs of the class as I develop a class, develop a lesson or an episode. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I say, I really, you know, I need something to illustrate this concept. And so sometimes it's me figuring out how to do that and coming, whether it's creating my own data set or going out and finding data that can support it or... Uh, you know, whatever I can find. Uh, and that has kind of been a continual process over time as I've gone through the years, 
you know, occasionally I'll say, I need an exercise to illustrate this. And I'll just have to you know, spend some time to figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. There is some conflicting, might not be the right word, but some conflicting uh, evidence about how students react to these kinds of different uh, learning learning environments where on one hand we can see like a rise in motivation when students get to support each other and get to discuss mm -hmm. and get excited about the hands-on nature of it. On the other hand, sometimes these kinds of courses don't meet their expectation of the teacher should just tell me the right answers. <laughs> so how do your students react to a really kind of different way of, of learning science? Uh, well, I can tell you that just in the big picture, um, this is, it's, it's my highest rated class <laughs> of, the four, of the four classes that I teach. Um, but uh, digging a little bit deeper, looking at uh, the student comments that mm -hmm. I get from, from the course evaluations, um, they talk about, I mean, in the, in the comments that I get on the class, they talk about how they couldn't wait to come to class to figure out what happens next. Um, that should just blow everybody's it. mind. And that's exactly what, that's exactly the mindset you want your students to have. You yes. want them to come to class, right? Mm -hmm. To be motivated to come to class, to find out what's going to happen. Um, it was, I actually had very on, I had one student kind of just express that to me after class one time, kind of in frustration, you know, uh -huh. it's like, Oh, I'm frustrated. Cause now, you know, I have to come back to class to find out what happens. And I'm sitting it's there like going, that's exactly, we have to wait for your, for your episode to uh, drop right. on Netflix. And I'm, right? and I'm sitting there going, that's exactly the way I want you to feel, <laughs> you know, he's complaining, but yeah. it's like, that's what I want. that's how I want them to, a lot of the comments really, um, express appreciation, especially for the hands-on. It seems like the hands-on things that we do, like the Orsted experiment that I talked about, we do another one with, I mean, it's kind of a, and I always thought it was a, kind of a very, almost too easy, kind of cheesy experiment that we do with rubber bands mm -hmm. and binder clips <laughs> to, um, to try to illustrate the, the process that creates the energy behind a solar flare. And I thought, well, this is probably too simple, you know, and they're probably going to think this is dumb. But the comments I get about that, they, they talk about how they remember that. That's one of the things that they remember. And really, it connects to, you know, that's one thing about teaching is you're always trying to connect to prior learning and prior knowledge. Right. And that's what it does. It, 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 it takes a, a potentially very complex concept, you know, a solar flare and, and the powering mechanism of a solar flare, which is ma magnetic reconnection. But by relating it to the very simple act of, of, of cutting, clipping a rubber band together and cutting it in half, um, it makes a connection and it makes them understand it. And that's something that, that's, that, um, that, that sticks with them. And I've had comments specifically talk about kind of the, the, the TV episode aspect of it. And that's something, um, I think especially now, where, you know, we're all, you know, binge watching TV shows uh -huh. and things so much now. Um, I think uh, that actually, that approach, I think, kind of connects uh, to them as well, and they actually uh, enjoy it and, uh, and, and like it. Well, and as you've talked about how you've sort of embraced that and even begun to label the class sessions right. as episodes. Yeah, and that's something I've recently done just in the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would, not, I would not discount the positive psychological effect such kind of labeling 
can have. I think of our Baylor colleague, Kevin Doherty, in sociology. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have tests anymore in his class. He has celebrations of learning. That's right. And, yeah. and students bring food <laughs> and, and balloons, and they play upbeat music, and then they take a test. Yeah, so <laughs> but it's a celebration that, of learning. That relabeling yeah. can mm -hmm. just bring a different mindset. Right. Um, and they, you know, my, the, the students are very engaged in class. Um, because, you know, we, we discuss, I mean, there, you know, there is a lecture element where I'm presenting information, but, you know, I present a little bit, we do hands-on exercises, problem solving, present, you know, so it kind of alternates. So it chunks the information, but it also, again, creates more of an interactive atmosphere and they definitely are more interactive in the class overall, which is, again, is, is something that you want. I'm assuming that this is also really affected your assessment strategies for this type of class you know you can't probably give <laughs> a type of exam where it's like plug and chug these formulas and right. equations and that kind of thing so can you talk a little bit about how you assess the student learning yes so so the the, the tests during the course of the semester are, are are more because of the approach that we're taking they're, they're more um, qualitative questions so you know, while we will do some math and some of the problems that we do in class, um, just by nature of some of it, we have to do, we have to be able to do some math, but mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's very basic. You know, we're not doing calculus or anything. Um, but I also make it very clear, you, while we are using math in class to, to address some of these problems, there will be no math on the test. Mm -hmm. So it makes, so that immediately makes it a low stakes. Yeah. So it, it lowers a lot of their, because a lot of the students, especially, you know, non-science majors, some of them are going to come in with a lot of anxiety about math, and that's definitely something that I've seen. So it lowers the stakes for that, first of all, so they know, you know, they're not going to have to do this on tests. So the tests are very qualitative questions, so it's more, you know, about what, um, you know, what was the significance of this event, or um, tell me about, you know, what is, what is the process that powers the solar flare? You know, what was the significance of the 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 discovery of the telescope in the early 1600s and how did that influence what we learned about the sun you know so questions kind of along those lines um that the, that i will ask but then when we get to the final the final exam is very much a non-traditional final exam and, I, and i've tried a few different approaches for the final exam and i've tried some different things uh the the one that that i've enjoyed the most is where basically I give them a, a scenario where they are a part of a, they are a member of a space weather consulting firm and uh, Congress is considering cutting the budget for the Space Weather Prediction Center um, under the National Weather Service. And so they are testifying before Congress. Uh -huh. To, uh, to explain why the funding should not be cut and what the significance of um, the services that the Space Weather Prediction Center provides. And of course, to be able to do that, they have to understand space weather processes, how they work, how we measure them, how they're forecast. They have to be able to understand, more importantly, what are the impacts of space weather? How does that affect our society? How does it affect our technology? Uh, whether potential ramifications if we're not able to provide, you know, warnings and forecasts of these events for the various technology sectors that can be impacted. Um, and so I've done this before in the final exam when I had smaller classes, so I would actually simulate testifying before Congress. Uh -huh. So I would be a, a senator, 
and who knows absolutely nothing about space weather. Right. And so they would be kind of lined up there, and I would go down the line just ask, you know, alternate asking them questions uh, related to this topic and related to space weather and why is it important and how does it impact us and and some of those. And so they have to be able to basically kind of synthesize all of the information that they've learned through the course of the semester to be able to articulate um, those answers. So there's kind of an oral exam part yeah. uh, that simulates testifying to Congress, and then there's a written part where they have to write a letter um, to Congress so they, they have more time to you know think about and, and articulate um, a, a written response to, to Congress to justify uh, their argument for why the funding should not be cut. So I've, and I, so I've played around with variations of that and done some different things to, with that kind of final exam uh, testing environment, to kind of change things up. I love that rhetorical situation of testifying to Congress, because as you say, they, <laughs> I don't think it's going on on a limb. They're not going to be space weather experts, <laughs> right, right? And so right. automatically you've set the expectation of what what kind of language ought to be used. And I think it's a common frustration, especially in, in humanities, where we assign some kind of student writing, and no matter how much we ask students to avoid using jargon and things like that mm-hmm. so that we can better understand what they actually know and they're not just hiding it in jargon. We yeah. get these papers that are just incomprehensible <laughs> four-syllable words one after another after another because they think that's what sounding smart mm. means, yeah. you know. Yeah. So creating that rhetorical situation where the expectation is, no, you've got you've to use short words. They and, have to dumb and, it down. They yeah. have to explain it in simple terms and in mm-hmm. layman's terms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And as any teacher knows that. <laughs> That's when you cut to the quick of whether or not a student understands right, something. Right, yeah. right, Well, how has this this approach to this class affected your own thinking about, about your own discipline? Well, we've talked about the relative importance of math skills. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it's, I don't know that it's changed my thinking because, as I said, I've, I've always been kind of a, of that mindset of, community outreach and public education. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it fits very, very naturally with that mindset. I've always kind of, you know, wanted to be able to take this complex concept and explain it in, in, in an easily understandable way. That's something I've just kind of always done. And I guess to some degree it come, comes naturally because I've always done it. Yeah. Um, and so it fits very ni- nicely with that. So I don't know it's changed my thinking in that regard, but it has changed my thinking in some ways. And again, a lot of it because of the discussions I had with Ed Berger, you know, as a mathematician, but he talks about math very differently. Um, and so looking at it as, yes, we, we use math to solve problems, but it, it's not about the math. Right. It's, it's about critical thinking and problem solving skills. And that was something that Ed Berger really got me to thinking about, you know, that thinking about it in terms of, you know, you're, you're, you're using and honing problem solving skills. You know, you're, you're given, you know, it's a situation where, okay, here's the information that I know. Here are the tools I have to figure out what I need to know. One of those tools may be a math equation, but it's not, again, it's not about the math. The math is a tool right. to try to figure out, to you take the information you know, use the tools you have to figure something out or to answer a question um, or to, to, to solve a problem. Um, as, you know, Zed Berger said, it's not about 
the answer, it's about the process. Yeah. And so emphasizing, you know, that it's about the process, you know, that, that you're, it's not about the answer, it's about giving an effort and using your problem solving skills. So that's what I focus on. It's not about getting the right answer when I give them um, a problem solving class, especially using math, but it's about giving it an effort and, you know, using, using the, the, the problem solving skills. One great comment that I actually got this semester uh, just a few weeks ago from one of my students who was a very kind of uh, math averse student. Um, and because I was kind of addressing the issue in class a little bit because some of the students were kind of struggling with the math a little bit. I was kind of talking about the, the math and you may not like, you know, a lot of you may not like math, but it, again, it's a tool that you use and to problem solve sometimes. But she spoke up and she said, um, and this again, this is a student that self-proclaimed doesn't like math. She said, uh, she said, I actually like the problems we're doing in this class because um, they're practical. You know, we're, we're actually trying to solve a problem. You know, there's a problem that needs to be answered, mm-hmm. and we're using the math to get an answer to a problem that needs to be solved. And she said, I like that. I like using math in that way. Yeah. And I never quite thought about it that way, but I, that was a really cool response, I thought, um, that, yeah, that's what we're doing. Uh, yeah. And, and, and to get them, you know, if I can get them to think about math differently, um, that's, a, that's a real benefit. Yeah, rather than, I think, imp- implicitly anyways students get the impression in a lot of math courses that math is its own end right which is i don't think what any math instructor (laughs) would actually want you know we we it's just like language a language instructor like you're not learning a language just to learn a language you're learning the language so that you can communicate and broaden who you can speak to and 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 interact with right 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 so with all of these uh hands-on and 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 problem folk focused approaches do you have any problems or activities that you've been wanting to implement that you just haven't had the time or haven't quite found the right angle or place for it yet yeah I've always got new ideas so with this being my what I call my experimental class you know I'm always trying out new things and you know some things work and some things and if they don't work I don't do them again and um, but you know I'm always willing to, to try new things out and yeah, I've had some ideas for some things I've wanted to try that I haven't quite figured out how to do yet. Maybe doing some um, like kind of larger kind of whole class kind of, you know, using the entire class and using the entire class period to do to have them address a kind of a larger problem, like maybe, um, you know, you're planning a mission to Mars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, y'all spend the class as a group Thinking about, thinking about, talking about, coming up with, okay, what do you need to do to plan for the space weather hazards um, that are going to be presented on a, on a, you know, a human mission to Mars? Um, you know, that would take a whole class period to do something right. like that. Um, giving them, giving them data and, you know, basic measurements and having them write their own space weather forecast. Um, things that take a little more time. So I haven't, and most of them, and the, I guess the reason I mostly haven't done things like that is because of the time issue. You know, it yeah. takes a whole class to do that. And so fi- just finding the time and the kind of the schedule of, of the course to, to do kind of these, these bigger things. I've, talking about, I've, ta- I've thought about smaller things, like instead of giving them the cliffhanger, uh-huh. 
then have them kind of work in small groups and, and, and discuss with each other what would be kind of the next natural question to ask. Yeah. And have them come up with their own cliffhanger mm-hmm. at the end of a class. Mm-hmm. I've thought about that. I haven't done it, but that's something I've thought about. Back to that, um, you remember what well. you create. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, I've got I've, – I've, I have ideas out there for things that, that I've, I've thought about trying but haven't tried yet. <laughs> That's great. Well, we'll stay tuned for the mission to Mars for sure. All right, Trey, Kate, thank you so much for joining the show no, today. You bet. Glad I could be here. Our thanks again to Dr. Kate for joining the show. In this episode's show notes, you'll find links to the Called to Teach collection, which includes Dr. Cade's essay on this class, an online profile of Ed Berger, and NASA's Space Weather Educational Resources. If you're enjoying this show, we'd love to have your five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which helps bring our show to the top of search results. And that's our show. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for Professors Talk Pedagogy.